You're listening to a Sunday morning message by Authentic Church. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you again. Okay, last week, to many people, was one of the most important dates in the calendar. It was when it was okay to feast on lots of chocolate. And I love chocolate, so it was a great day for me. But last Sunday, also, to many of us, was one of the most important dates in the Christian calendar as Easter defines the very essence of our Christian faith. Many would argue Easter is without doubt the defining element of the Christian faith, the sacrifice of God's Son, coupled, of course, with his resurrection. But Easter also marks the change from the symbolic, ritual religion of the Old Testament and brings in the new religion of a personal relationship with God the understanding of the Holy Spirit. And Easter marks the hope of salvation. So it got me thinking, what defined my faith? How was my faith shaped? In all honesty, I had a great foundation. My father was a charismatic Methodist minister. My mother was a local preacher. My grandfather was an ordained minister. And my aunt was a missionary who spent many years in Africa. And later, my brother became a vicar. So in some ways, I had no excuse. But although this was a great, wonderful foundation, it didn't define how my faith would be. In my early days, my faith was shaped by some of the great books I was given, such as God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. If you haven't read it, it's a great read. It reads like a wonderful fiction book, but it's real and Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger, both of which I read as a student. More lately, my faith was also shaped by some of the many worship songs from the 90s and the noughties, including songs um, such as Matt Redman, one of the songs we sung earlier that you liked. (laughs) And recently it struck me how many of Matt Redman's songs were tied into the Easter message of last week. Worship songs such as, It is finished. And once again I look upon the cross where you died. Obviously his most famous song, Ten Thousand Reasons, otherwise known as Bless the Lord or My Soul, um, was one of his better, well-known ones. And You Never Let Go was a song that I loved. And If God is with me, whom shall I fear? These words have got me through many a dark days. And I love these songs. Matt is such an accomplished songwriter and theologian in his own right. But really, in my early days, it was the books that defined my faith. As I mentioned before, one such book was Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. I don't know if you know much about Jackie, but Jackie herself, like Matt, was a musician. But God had a different plan for her life. Jackie Pullinger graduated from the Royal College of Music in London, having specialised in oboe. But, because all things are possible with God, he was able to help use her to evangelise and help drug addicts in Hong Kong. Now let's just back up a bit there and take that in. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense on paper. A Royal College of Music oboe graduate going to the other side of the world to work in one of Asia's most dangerous neighbourhoods 
with gangs and drug addicts and without, in the early days, being able to speak the language. And Chinese is such a hard language, or Mandarin or Cantonese, to learn. But God made sense of it all. As I mentioned earlier, my brother and his wife are both vicars, and their son David, my nephew, is actually working in Hong Kong now with Jackie Pullinger. They recently sent me some photos of Hong Kong, and um, I just think that David, who's my nephew, is such a lucky guy to work with such an incredible woman. But more importantly, I can't believe Jackie Pullinger is still active. Um, she's she's a, a, a lady of senior years, but what amazing woman to be still doing God's work after all this time. But what is interesting about Jackie Pullinger and Brother Andrew, the authors of God Smuggler, is how God transformed their lives. Now, Brother Andrew was a soldier, and Jackie Pullinger, as we said, wanted to be a professional musician. They had been ordinary people going about their ordinary lives, much like the disciples, at least before Jesus came along. But the real change happened to the disciples after Jesus' death. Peter went from a rash individual who got so much wrong to one of the founding fathers of the church. And I love Peter, because Peter got so much wrong and put his foot in it so many times. And that makes me feel great, because I put my foot in it so many times and get so much wrong, and especially when it comes to God. And yet God still used Peter, so there's still hope for me yet. <laughs> but this is the point. In simple terms, we can say after Easter, everybody who believed could do something incredible because of the Holy Spirit. So what is amazing here is that we can now conclude that with the Holy Spirit, we can do something incredible. Chasing the dragon and God's smuggler show that God worked in an incredible, powerful way, but often not in the way we were expecting. As some of you remember, I looked at this theme once before, the counterintuitiveness of how God operates. God being capable of doing things that seemed impossible. Easter was one such event. As Nigel referred to in his sermon on Palm Sunday, it was almost counterintuitive to have this great Messiah ride into Jerusalem on a small donkey. It's not the way I would have done this. To me, the simple crucif um, to me in simple terms, the crucifixion was counterintuitive to the way of the world. But boy, did God make it work with the ultimate power of grace. The power of this, Jesus dying to save us from our sins when we were and are so undeserving. God does things his way, and sometimes this looks mad to us. Let's be honest, putting your only son on earth to save the world is a great idea. But having him put to death on a cross... That wouldn't be my first choice of, uh, of how to go about saving the world. Even his disciples just didn't get this. If you read the Old Testament, they really didn't get this. A Messiah should save the world with all guns blazing, not submitting to the baddies being put to death. But here's an important point. As Christians, we read 
uh, need to recognize that often his ways are not our ways. His ways are often counterintuitive. L last year, I don't know if some of you remember, but I told you the story in one of my previous sermons about the black um, Baptist minister, the Reverend Kennedy, in the USA in the 1990s, who took into his house an ex-Klu Klux Klan leader that had fallen on hard times. It was mad. It was counterintuitive. He didn't understand why the Lord was telling him to do this. It was completely alien. But God told the Reverend Kennedy to take this Ku Klux Klan leader into his house with his family, a man who hated um, people of color. But he did what the Lord said, even though it didn't seem the right way for him. And of course, the Ku Klux Klan leader was converted, gave his life to the Lord, repented of his past ways. And it's such an amazing story. But to early Christians from the Jewish faith, it may not have seemed so counterintuitive. As on one hand, it was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shearers, he never said a word. And Psalm 22, 16 states, my, enery, uh, sorry, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. As an evil gang closes in on me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And we know what that's referring to. One of the most familiar prophecies about Jesus is found in Isaiah 53, which describes the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, 4, the prophet mentions how the suffering servant took up our pain and bore our suffering. And in Zechariah 12.10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So you can see Easter um, and the, the, the crucifixion being a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And there's many, many more verses in there. But to hu many humans, Easter was counterintuitive, but to many, so is grace. And grace came from the Easter story. So what is grace? I'll tell you the official definition in Christian theology. It is the spontaneous, unmerited gift of the divine favor in the salvation of sinners and the divine influence operating in individuals for their regeneration and sanctification. Wow. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean? So usually we see grace as unmerited favor, or basically getting what you don't deserve. I could do a whole um, series of sermons on grace, but I'll, I'll spare you too much detail today. But there is a story from my early days that reminded me of this, the undeserving nature of grace. In my 20s, I didn't always see the best in people. I'd be taught at university, 
in my first degree how to be critical. And I became good at this. And I knew a couple once who I was really not fond of. They were rude and selfish, but I knew them through a mutual friend, so I had to see them. They were the type of couple to criticize your cooking, but eat it all, and contribute nothing. They never seemed to offer help with anything, they never shared anything, or bought any food and wine to events, so I just didn't like them. To me, they seemed mean, lazy, and selfish. One year, this couple were gifted a lovely Edwardian house in North London. This house was worth a small fortune. And the house was given to them by an elderly member of the family that they themselves admitted they had ignored. I could hardly believe it. Of all the people I knew, in my opinion, the least deserving of such a gift. To me, this gift was getting something you didn't deserve. They'd spent no time with this elderly relative as she became sick and died, but they were still given her house. But incidentally, as I've matured as a Christian, I've, I've learned to try and see the good in people. So feel free to criticize my cooking. Um, I honestly won't mind. But my point here is they received a huge gift, which to many who knew them seemed undeserved. And we don't deserve grace, but we, we can have it. What I love about grace is firstly, it's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work to get it, though you do have to commit yourself to Christ. And secondly, as I labored before, it's a gift we don't deserve. We're all sinners, yet we get grace. Let's hear that again. We're all sinners. We don't deserve God's grace, but he's given it anyway. And thirdly, it is so powerful because it is counterintuitive by the very fact that it's free and undeserved. And lastly, grace defines the Christian faith. Okay, we understand that. But what happens next? Well, along comes the interesting stuff at Pentecost and the Great Commission. It's one of my favorite bits of the New Testament. The Great Commission is outlined in Matthew 28, 16, uh, 20. When on the mountain in Galilee, Jesus calls on his followers to make disciples and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yet again, one could do a whole sermon on this very passage, but I'll just touch on a few points here. But let's read um, the actual chapter. So in the NIV version, it reads from chapter 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, this is what I nickname the double sharing passage. 
where God shared his power with us and commanded us to share our faith. We have everything in the Bible to show us how powerful God is, yet I think we often still pigeonhole God and we think of God in humanistic terms. We fail to understand his way even after the miracle of Easter because it was a miracle. When I was a student, I met a lovely girl. I thought she was brilliant. She was attractive, clever, and fun. And she was the first person I ever tried to convert or share my faith with. She was a bright girl, but she didn't understand Christianity. She had the logical, scientific mind and was studying to become a vet. But she soon started to ask questions about my faith in Christianity and I was struggling to make sense of um, it to her. So I decided to take her to a church that was seeing a huge charismatic revival at the time. This church was St. Andrew's in Chorley Wood on the outskirts of London. What I wanted was her to experience great preaching and great teaching, but I also wanted her to experience great worship. The church had a large worship band made up of great musicians and the worship there was so uplifting. However, when I took my friend, things did not go as planned. The, the vicar stood up and said he was going to let a member of the youth lead worship that service. So a young teenage boy sung worship songs slightly off tune whilst trying hard to play the guitar. I have to say, I was furious with God. I traveled all this way, and it was about an hour's travel and told my friend how great the worship was. And we had this teenager, in my opinion, ruining the worship. I could remember saying to God, what are you doing, God? I'm trying to show my friend here how great worship is and how great you are. Not unsurprisingly, I thought I heard God say to me, Randall, I do know what I'm doing. And indeed, he was right. God always knows what he's doing. And although this teenager, Matthew, didn't sound very good to me, you can probably guess what I'm going to say. He went on to write and co-write a hundred songs, and is probably one of the most famous worship leaders in the UK. In fact, Matt Redman is probably the only British songwriter to have a number one hit in the American Christian charts. So yes, God did know what he was doing. But the story doesn't finish there. I carried on trying to sh share my faith, not particularly very well with my friend. And I used to belong to a house group, and one Thursday night after this event, I went to the house group, and they said, Randall, is there anything we can pray for you? And I said, oh, yes, that God helps me convert my friend, because I wasn't doing a very good job of it. So they prayed, and the guy leading worship said, Randall, I've got a picture. God is going to give you a helper to help you convert your friend. So don't worry, it'll be all right, Randall. So that sounded good. But unfortunately, I got a telephone call the next day from my friend, and she said, Randall, I'm just ringing to say that I've been invited by my best mate from university to go and spend the summer holidays with her. I'll be going abroad tomorrow. 
I asked where, and she said, I'm going to Hong Kong with my friend for about eight weeks. Well, I was devastated. Not only was I lo losing my friend for the whole summer, but clearly I'd failed in my quest to bring her to the Lord. And yet again, I got frustrated with God at the situation. It was one big muck-up. What was he doing? Two days later, I got a telephone call from my friend, and she said, Randall, I've arrived in Hong Kong safely, and I was taken to a meeting where I met a lady called Jackie Pullinger. I gave my life to the Lord, and she seemed to think you would know all about it, so I'm just ringing to say thank you. Later, I was praying about this, and I felt the Lord say, Randall, don't you ever doubt me. Through me, all things are possible. Your friend going to the other side of the world wasn't a problem to me. Through me, all things are possible. Well, there's several clear points about this. Firstly, my lack of faith was, uh, sorry, firstly, my lack of faith that God was not in control. And secondly, my failure to understand that all things are possible through God. As with the Easter story, God knew exactly what he was doing. I think many of us think, why would God be interested in what we are doing? Why would God be interested in our situation? Or, this situation is far too difficult for God to handle. But in Matthew 19, 26, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, I know there are many people here with a great faith, and probably a greater faith than mine. But I believe the message is, it's time we stop pigeonholing God, or putting God in a box, and started to expect the impossible. Amen. Thanks be to God.